Um, when I was uh, going into college, so 1994, uh, there was uh, a song that was one of the number one songs that year, Shine by Collective Soul. Um, and I'm, I'm both dating myself uh, and then just going to show that, uh, uh, well, yeah, just that I'm old. And so kids, you might not be familiar with Collective Soul. And even folks who are um, my age, Collective Soul was relatively uh, big, but not huge. But I actually got to know when I went to uh, school, the, the campus minister for the ministry that I was involved with for all four years and then worked for for four years after that, um, he and I became very good friends. And his brothers were in Collective Soul. His older brother uh, wrote all the music and was the lead singer. And, uh, and his younger brother plays in the band. And so I ended up uh, both going to a lot of Collective Soul concerts and, uh, and uh, just getting to spend time with them and in ways that was, uh, they're, they're really fun guys. I got to go to Thanksgiving with them. And, but I, I kind of felt really cool at one point when I got tickets to uh, a music fest, outdoor music fest, that they were one of the bands playing. Um, and I got backstage passes as well. And it had not been that long since I'd spent Thanksgiving with them. And I was, as I approached them, as I approached the lead singer, Ed, he, he gave me a big hug. And there was another, there was a kid there that also was like awestruck by uh, Ed Rowland and Collective Soul. And he's like, oh my goodness, he gave you a hug. Uh, he even said something about it. The kid said something about it. And I was like, yeah, I know these guys. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of how I felt, right? That's not exactly what I said, right? Um, but it, it, was, um, it was a fun experience, right? To, to get to know, you know, whether it be because you like their music, and I, and I, I do like their music, or um, because they're famous or whatever. There are all these uh, uh, different things going on, likely. Um, and, and yet, if, if we think about that, Opportunity. Who might we want to, if we could just pick who we would get to be friends with or spend time with, right? What artists might it be? It could be a musician or somebody who's created something else. Uh, it, could be, it could be something that we think about as art, but maybe it's somebody who created a company or a product. Uh, what would it be like to spend time with them, right? To be in relationship with them. And, and, and who might you pick? Would it be a musician or would it be somebody who's uh, created something that's important to you. Well, as we come to this, uh, this particular phrase in the Apostles' Creed, we, we looked at, I believe, the first week, God the Father Almighty, last week. This week, it's maker of heaven and earth, the creator. And as we note every week, really, but certainly last week with God the Father, the one who created all things wants relationship. He is, by definition, relational. We've already talked about God the Father, and we have to see him as maker of heaven and earth in light of that. He is inviting us as the creator of the heavens and the earth into relationship with him. And that then encourages us to wonder, to, to, to find wonder in him, to find purpose in him, and to find hope in him. Those are the three points for this morning. That because he is God the Father, maker of heaven and earth, that we are able to, to find wonder all to find purpose and to find hope. So let me pray and we'll take a look. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of you and your creation of which we are a part and that we would wonder at who you are. 
that we would find purpose for our lives and that we would find hope in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're invited into relationship with that creator of all things. And the first thing that we find is that it invites us into wonder. To, that is to, uh, to have awe at, to be, to be struck by his greatness. We see this in multiple places here in Psalm 33. But in verse 6 through 9, we see that there's this description of his creation. By the word of the Lord, just by his word. This is very clearly a reference to, to Genesis chapter 1, where he creates all things just by speaking. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. I mean, this picture, the the language that's being used here should strike us and cause us to wonder if we think about the implications of it. There's this picture of the waters of the sea as a heap and and the deeps in storehouses that he can just gather them up in his hands. Uh, We find even that specific reference in other passages. But the, the... depths of the seas he just gathers together and and the depths of the seas are almost unimaginable there's uh the the story of magellan on one of his uh journeys he was trying to figure out how deep the sea was and so he ties a number of his uh strings together his depth finders together and ties a cannonball to the end i believe he tied six together and he and he drops them down uh this would have been 2400 feet and he didn't find the bottom he, he apparently would have needed 50 lines to get to the bottom of the sea at that point. And, and, and even six not reaching it, he's like, it's, uh, it's infinitesimal. I can't even imagine how deep the seas are. And we have some picture of that now, but we certainly don't have dominion over the depth of the seas. And yet there's the picture that, that God just gathers them together in a heap. And he stores uh, the waters up in storehouses for or rain or snow or weather. This is picture of him as the one who created this majestic world that would cause us to have awe. That's where it goes to in verse eight. Let all the earth fear the Lord. And fear of the Lord is, is so much more than, it's not just being afraid of. It's not, it's not even that connotation. It's this, this respect and all for the one who has this kind of, of power. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. If he is the one who created all things, this amazing world in which we see, that we, we know that these, this creation, the heavens and the earth, declare his glory, Psalm 19, verse 1 tells us. Uh, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 19, we see this picture of creation revealing who God is. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. He has made this beautiful world in a way that declares his glory, that that causes us to be in awe of him. One one of my favorite places in scripture that illuminates the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God's creation is the book of Job. And particularly when, when God speaks to Job about uh, Job's complaints. And there are two of my, as a result of that being one of my favorite places, there are two songs, both with the title, Where Were You?, that are based on Job. And one of them is Ghost Ship. And I, I recommend that one. You can find it on a Spotify or another streaming service. But another one is, is called Where Were You? by 
our favorite, when we were, when our kids were young, our favorite children's artist, Justin Roberts. And, uh, and he wrote uh, this song also based on Job. And I'm going to quote a little bit from it. Uh, it's unfortunately not on any of the streaming services, but we had the CD uh, and I still have it on my computer as a result. But this is, this is what he says. So this is God speaking to Job and really to all of us who are created by God, who are part of his creation. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? And where were you when I set the stars in place and they all sang together up in space? Where were you when I filled the seas and oceans? Where were you when I locked them in the land and they all sang together on the sand? I won't say all the hallelujahs. Where were you when I formed the ancient atoms? And where were you when I fashioned life a home and it all sang together? Where were you when I set the leopard running? And where were you when I taught the birds their song and they all sang together in that bright and brilliant dawn? Where were you when I set the snow in store for the winter? Ever wonder who lays the rain up, lays the rain up high? Can you tell me who cuts a highway in the sky with the lightning and the thunder? Perfect through and through, the words you say are true. Where were you? He goes on and I'll quote from the end of it later. But it's just this picture of the beauty of creation. He just mentions the slightest bit of it. The stars and the sea and the land and leopards. And, and this gives this picture of, of beauty of his creation. And, and we see that, that this passage in Psalm 33 goes on to describe even more than just the creation. It's his reign and rule and his control of it. That he knows all as a result of him being creator. That his counsel stands above all others. Verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. He is the one who is in control of all things. He's not surprised that his, his wisdom has to change. Ours is constantly changing, right? We're seeing things in different light. We're, we're oh, I wasn't aware of this. I wasn't, we're learning more. Um, he's not blinded by what we might call local bias. As, as his creation, we're bound by local bias. That is, whether it be by just geography, we live where we live, or by history, we live when we live, or by relationship or experience. There are all kinds of things that we don't have the full picture, and yet he is one who sees all, verses 13 through 15. He looks down from heaven, and he sees the children of man from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He, he who fashions the hearts of all of them and observes all their deeds. He's aware of every, there's, there's nothing that blinds him from what is true. And he is reigning and ruling now. We are invited to be in awe of this God who created all things. There is a response from the psalmist here. In Psalm 33, joy, praise, thanks, all. Verses 1 through 3, there's that picture of shout for joy, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Joy and praise goes on this picture of giving thanks to the Lord with the lyre, making melodies, singing to him a new song. There is this response of recognizing him as that creator. It is the all mentioned in verse 8, standing in awe of this great and mighty God. There are all kinds of things that we regularly find ourselves in awe of, that we marvel at. I don't know if, how many in here have seen the movie Oppenheimer. 
and I hope that you uh, were able to see it at the IMAX uh, over here at the State Museum. It was, it was a little bit, there's a level at which it was awe-inspiring. Both the film itself, but then also the subject, being both Oppenheimer as a person, being the creation of uh, the splitting of atoms and nuclear power, and all the ways that it's played out since then, it's, it, it, it's hard not to marvel at uh, all that went on in that, to marvel at this person, to marvel at what he was a part of creating, just the, the science mind, the, the, also the mind that created this town in the middle of New Mexico that gathered all these people together that, that saw this happen, marveling at the, the implications and, and the struggle of those implications. And... and and we think about how they might have experienced it at the time. We all in this room have grown up with the existence of uh, nuclear power and nuclear weapons. It would have been even more of a marvel for those at the time that this was all new for. That you can imagine, you can try to imagine at least, how they might have experienced this, this totally new thing. And, uh, and yet it's become something that is a little bit in the background for us. We don't marvel at it that much because we've grown up with the reality, the threats, the arms race, all of these things, right? We, we become uh, just expecting things to be the way they are, and we don't marvel at some of the reality of God's amazing creation. There, there should be an encouragement here for us to be attentive to God's amazing creation. I, I, I love this passage um, from this book, Rooted, that is about the Apostles' Creed. And um, it, it's a couple pastors in our denomination. And they talk about this idea, this, this phrase that they use actually is, um, is called om- omnivorous attentiveness. Attentiveness to the creation of God. So they're referring to C.S. Lewis and they say, Lewis has the ability to see and feel what most of us see and do not see. He had what Alan Jacobs called omnivorous attentiveness. I love that phrase. What this has done for me is hard to communicate. To wake up in the morning and to be aware of the firmness of the mattress, the warmth of the sun's rays, the sound of the clock ticking, the coldness of the wooden floor, the wetness of the water in the sink, the sheer being of things, quiddity, as he called it. And not just to be aware, but to wonder, to be amazed that the water is wet. It didn't have to be wet. If there were no such thing as water and one day someone showed it to you, you would simply be astonished. He helped me to become alive to life, to look at the sunrise and say with an amazed smile, God did it again. He helped me see what is there in the world, things which if we didn't have them, we would pay a million dollars to have, but having them ignore. He convicts me of my callous inability to enjoy God's daily gifts. He helps me to awaken to my dazed soul so that the realities of life and of God and of heaven and hell are seen and felt. There's this picture, I think, of the reality of the beauty of which we experience, which we we come to expect on some level because it becomes just the the sunrise and the sunset and the warm sun, uh, experiencing the sun's rays, all, all kinds of small things that we just come to expect. And we become focused on the things that are not the way that they're supposed to be. And, and to be clear, the scripture recognizes that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. But there's an invitation here to rejoice in, to celebrate the beauty of God's creation, 
with omnivorous attentiveness and to allow it then to point us to the one who created all things, the heavens and the earth beyond what we can uh, imagine. Uh, Isaiah says in Psalm 46, this picture of uh, the awe that he has at seeing the heavens and stars in the heavens, not recognizing the billions and trillions of stars that were there and, and the trillions of miles between him and them and the millions of galaxies that existed beyond that, right? We weren't even just beginning to understand some of that. But what we should experience is that those things point to the creator who is that majestic and that powerful. And to remember that he's the father so that he then has purpose for us. It's not just that we would wonder at his power alone, but that we would wonder at this God, the father, who loves his children and has, as a result of creating this world, purpose for us. A purpose that flows from his love because he created the world out of love. He, God is love, we know. And it's, he was love before creation itself. Love doesn't just flow because he created the world and then had something to love. No, he loved the son and the spirit before creation. Jesus tells us that in John 17, verse 24, when he talks about the father loving him before creation. And so out of that love, he creates the world and it has then purpose for us, that world which he rules perfectly. Verses 13 to 15, we already looked at him looking down upon the world, his counsel standing where ours fails. Verse 10 to 11, he brings the counsels of the nations to nothing and he frustrates the plans of the people, but the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations Verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Now, just two things I want to note about this verse. Verse 12, blessed are the nations whose God is the Lord. One, this recognition that we can have gods who aren't the Lord, who aren't the Lord here, Yahweh, the personal name for the creator of the world who says, I will be your God and you will be my people. This name for this relational God We can have other gods, other things that are more important than him in our own lives. And we call those idols. We call those worshiping the creation instead of the creator. And we're invited to have him as our only God. The other thing is when it when it says blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Let's be really clear here that this is not an application for the United States of America. This is an application for the people of God, which at the time were a nation. Israel, But that has since expanded to all nations. The church is the new Israel and exists among all tribes and tongues and nations. And in the end, in the glory that God creates when he returns and makes all things new, there will be people from all tongues and tribes and nations, a part of his people, the church. This is not an application for our nation. So this is absolutely not pointing to Christian nationalism, or even things moving in that direction. That's not scriptural application of nations. It's not the way that it's understood biblically. That doesn't mean that we don't, as Christians, think about what does it look like for us to be faithful wherever we are, but it is not pushing us toward this idea of Christian nationalism. That was a side note for free. Um, But we come across passages like that, and sometimes we have assumptions. I think it's helpful to note So then we see that this purpose that God has, it orders the world. It orders how we live in it. 
Because God created this world. He created it with purpose. Purpose that flows out of who he is. Look at verse 5. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Actually, um, jumped uh, ahead. I meant to read verse 5, which is what I said. All right. For the, I'll go back all the way to verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. This description of who God is, of one who loves righteousness and justice, who is upright and works in faithfulness, whose steadfast love is in all of the earth, who who fills the earth with his steadfast love, is this picture that God himself is the one who defines righteousness, justice, and love, that he is the very source of these things, that he is the one who defines these things, and that he wants them to play out in this world. And that as we move forward, that we look to see righteousness and justice and love move forward in the world. That's part of the purpose to which he has called us. But what we see very clearly in Scripture is that those flow from who he is. It, it, it's remarkable where we are in our, our culture today. Mark Sayers talks about we're in a time where we want the kingdom without the king. That is, we want some of the benefits of a, a God who reigns and rules in righteousness and love and justice. But we don't actually want to submit ourselves to that king. Uh, there's a fascinating book called Dominion by Tom Holland. Not that Tom Holland. <laughs> Different one. Historian. Not, not a Christian, but has written really a tome uh, with a historical look at the reality that our values as a culture, uh, they flow out of Christianity. That our love for justice, even science and secularism, that is uh, having freedom of religion, of equality, that all these are rooted in Christianity. And that our culture would like to dismiss the Christ part, that's dismiss the king, but have the kingdom and the benefits. But what we find is that the creator had a purpose and it matters. And so it does actually help us think about how we engage in every area of our lives, whether that be in relationships or in our jobs or politics or in our neighborhood, all of those things flow out of the creator who created us and has invited us into his purposes. But our purposes are defined by him. And if we don't recognize this, then we're going to fall into the trap, what has just become the accepted notion that you define what is true or who you are by what comes from inside. That that you have to define yourself from within, which comes with, frankly, a lot of pressure. It's on one level impossible to do, to just define yourself from within. Because at every point, we're influenced by something. And maybe it's not the church or scripture, but it's by certain people, even those that would say, you've got to figure out who you are, that there still comes with that very particular expectations about what's acceptable within that definition, right? We're all influenced by something. We're all dependent upon one another, We're dependent upon our culture and our creation. We we do have that that local bias that is influenced by our own experiences or where we live or when we live. All of these things, they all work together. But what we find here is that we're created with a purpose and his purpose for us matters. And that this God is a God who has revealed himself. 
This that we're reading, Psalm 33, is a part of his revelation about himself so that we would want to understand more about who the creator is and and therefore what his purpose for us is in every area, in our job, in our relationships, in uh, every area of our lives, that we would seek to know what the creator has for us. And ultimately, this fact that he is the creator at whom we wonder, who has given us purpose, this all allows us to hope in him. And we need that hope. So to be clear, is there's this picture of God as this amazing creator who calls us into worship him with joy and praise and thanksgiving. There is not a failure to recognize that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. There is very clear recognition that there are times many times, really, life in which we need deliverance or salvation as it's described here in the second half of the chapter. And yet there's a challenge that we're not going to find it. There's this recognition that we seek to find hope, salvation, deliverance, however we want to describe it, in places other than the Creator. Verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. This psalm was written in a particular time. We're not tempted to trust in the war horse to think that it's going to deliver us, or in our democracy, think that the king is going to deliver us, although often we think that a particular uh, political idea or party will. There are all kinds of things that might fall into this category of where we seek to find hope. And and maybe it's just finding hope in the distraction from the mess, right? So that there are things in creation that are good and right and beautiful, but the moment that those things become God, the moment those things become the most important thing is the moment that we're missing that which is really the one who we should be in awe of. I think about when we first moved to Colorado, we, we lived there for three years. Our kids were young. And my parents came in town, and it was the summer. We went to Copper Mountain, and we took the chairlift to the top. Amazing views, beautiful mountains. And uh, I remember being struck by the fact that my kids, who were young at the time, I don't even remember which of, maybe it was all of them, they, they were just focused on the rocks, picking up and finding rocks and probably throwing, throwing them at each other. And we're like, Look at this view. And they're like, rocks, rocks. And rocks are good. And rocks are beautiful and they're necessary, right? And there's something beautiful about that. But I kept thinking, you're missing the bigger picture. That is certainly a picture of our own experience. We should rightly rejoice in, wonder at, have omnivorous attentiveness to the creation of God, but we should constantly allow it to point to him. There is a danger that we will continue to go the route of focusing on the creation instead of the creator. Romans 1, again, has already talked about him revealing himself in creation. And then in verse 22, this is what Paul says. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, there is some reference to actually building physical idols, and that's not 
uh, what, again, what we're tempted to do. That's not our particular culture. And yet we're tempted to take the creation and make it the most important thing, even the good things. And the moment that we begin to hope in those things is the moment that we miss it. We're invited to find it in the Lord alone. Shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. Praise befits the upright. And to be clear, you righteous and the upright, that's God's people that he has made righteous and upright. Again and again, he tells us the gospel is that you can't do it on your own. You can't find hope in your own strength, the war horses or those around you. You have to turn to him and find it in him because his eye, verse 18, is on those who fear him. He will deliver, verse 19. He is our hope, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. We hope in him. Because he's given us this word to invite us into that relationship and that hope. He's not a story. He's not a God who created us just to be slaves. This is not the ancient creation story found in the Enuma Elish where Marduk, the God, created mankind to be his slave. Where he didn't have relationship or love or even relationship before creation. He was alone, right? God was not alone. He was Trinity. He created the world in love and he invites us into the overflow of that love into relationship with him. This idea of being in awe of him and wondering of him comes from this picture of how he created the world, his power that created the things that we can't even comprehend, but it doesn't tell us why. But his fatherliness, his relationship, his love tells us why he created, why he is the maker of heaven and earth. So that, the earth would be full of his, the steadfast love of the Lord, verse 5. Because he delivers us from our greatest need, that is our brokenness and sin and our rebellion against him. He invites us into this relationship. Finished for the end of that Justin Roberts song, Where Were You? Where were you when I crafted you a language and where were you when I filled your mind with words so you could cry, so you could sing, Sprinkle names on everything so you could laugh, tell a joke. Imagine towers wreathed with smoke so you could live and die with dignity and shake your fist with poetry, imagining creation from the first. This picture of it's it's this this beauty that he's called us into. The beauty of his creation. He's invited us into that. It's a picture of him and what he would have for us. And he makes that possible by delivering us. By saving us from our greatest enemy, our own sin and rebellion against him, our own tendency to turn to his creation instead of him as the creator. That's what we're invited into. Would we rejoice in it? Would we be attentive to it? That that, the one who created all things, wants relationship with us. That God, that one who is our father, invites us into that. Let's pray.